For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a teacher. I know I'd go from rags to riches. Welcome to What Do You Teach with Brian Elberg. Hello and welcome to What Do You Teach? I'm Brian Elberg, a public high school teacher in the Bronx, New York. This is a podcast where I hope to have some fun conversations about what is working and not working for students in classrooms today. I could not be any more excited about who we have as our first guest, and in just a moment, I'll bring you my conversation with John Hattie. If by some chance you're not familiar with Mr. Hattie's work, he is best known for his book, Visible Learning, which some have called the teacher's holy grail. In Visible Learning, he takes 15 years of research and synthesizes over 800 meta-analyses on the influences on achievement in school-age students. Basically, he looks at what strategies really work to improve learning and what strategies aren't worth the effort. I brought John on to talk about how COVID-19 and remote learning impacted student outcomes, as well as what lessons we should be taking from this remote learning experiment. Also, at some point, I used my brother's family to juxtapose the experience of students at both ends of the socioeconomic ladder. I took some poetic liberties, so Jake, if you're listening, no offense. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Hattie. I am so thrilled today to be joined by the director of the Melbourne Education Research Institute at the University of Melbourne. He was an appointed, he was appointed an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. And according to NPR, if there was an Education Researcher Hall of Fame, he would be in it. John Hattie, thank you so much for being with me. It's great to be talking to you, Brian. Did I, you made a face that one of the, is one of your credits incorrect? No, it, it just sounds so grandiose when you say all those kind of things. And I'm just a normal person, none of those kind of things. Well, I think that that's exactly what an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit would say. So I'm just a normal guy. I'm just, just doing my, just handling my business, doing my research. Well, again, thank you so much for being with me. Learn anything from this year plus that we've had of remote teaching and kids being out of school. And we're actually talking from my classroom right now in my apartment um, for this year. And so I guess my ultimate question is, what have we learned from this last year and how can we use it to inform what happens in schools when we go back in person next fall? Well, yeah, I do think the biggest crisis if, if we just rush back to the old normal, uh, the old normal kind of works. About 80% of the kids survive. 40% do well of that 80 and uh, the other half learn how to tolerate the schooling system and just <laughs> go along with it. But about 20 odd percent roughly, schooling isn't for them. And so it's not good enough um, that we've got a system that kind of works for a fair few. And those kids for it doesn't work for, those are the ones that we're going to have, are going to have the least opportunity in life. There's major equity things. So what an opportunity to turn it around. Now, don't get me wrong, Brian, there were bad things in COVID. There was death, there was sickness, there's unemployment, there was equity issues. And COVID amplified those and really comes to the point I'm making is that amplified them such that we can't afford to ignore them. But I also look at the other side of it. Like here in Australia and where I live in, this, in Victoria, COVID started at the start of our school year last year. And we had four months completely out of school at home. And we mm -hmm. went back for a few weeks, then we went out again for a while. So about 12 to um, a long time was spent out of school. But when you look at the data that's coming through, the first thing I want to note is that I can't find a single policy from any government superintendent district that helped you better teach during COVID. Other so, than it's, so it's not just my school then. It's that's a no. that's a worldwide thing. Okay, that's good to know. That's actually reaffirmed. Other than whether your school should open or close. Right. Now think about what you did. Overnight, you came up with different ways of teaching, different procedures. Surely. In my lifetime, our lifetime, it must be the greatest educator-led revolution we've ever seen. And That's we an often, interesting phrase, yeah. Yeah, because we, you know, you know what it's like in New York City, and I've worked in New York City yeah. in your school system. It comes from the top. You get edicts. You get things about this is how we're going to do it in the school district. Yep. In COVID, it was the opposite. And that's the first thing. The second thing is the data is starting to come through in some parts of the world. Like I looked at New Zealand data recently where they compared the performance of students in school 
last year compared with the previous 10 years. Yep. Virtually no difference. So is that, no sorry to interrupt, is that talking about the students who are in-person learning almost yes. throughout COVID compared to remote learning? There's almost no difference? No, no difference. Wow, the that's so interesting. The, the only difference is writing. Kids' writing performances weren't as good using um, COVID teaching, if I could call it that, distance yeah. learning, compared to normal. And I think we've got probably suggest some reasons for that. The Netherlands, the same. Even though the headlines of the Netherlands study was students have major learning loss, the effect size from last year to previous years was 0 0.08, minus 0 0.08, which any teacher could pick up with an eye blink. Right. Um, if you look at major stakes examinations, particularly at the end of high school, performance went up in COVID teaching. Now, that was true. Wow. I remember this in the Christchurch earthquake in 2011. I was working in New Zealand at the time on the Qualifications Authority in the Christchurch earthquake. Two of them happened, uh, pretty major. Uh, about 60 to 100 schools were destroyed, um, blah, blah, blah. And what, what was interesting, and this is what I'd ask you to reflect in COVID teaching, yeah. what happens is teachers say, Brian, come to my class and I'll tell you what you need to help with these exams. As opposed to on COVID teaching, Brian, what is it you're struggling with? What is it you know right. what you don't know? You switch from talking to triage. Right. And students then start working together and say, I don't understand this. The teacher's not here. How can we work together? What do we need to ask the teacher for some more support? It's almost like I sometimes feel like the lessons, I actually had this today. I had a lesson plan. I taught one class. I ended up sort of scratch, I ended up sort of making some major overhauls in, in the five minutes between periods. And the second period went great. And kids were like, this is so much, this is one of my favorite lessons of the year. And I think that's because it sort of speaks to the point you're making, which is when we have such a strict plan, our instincts are to follow that plan no matter what. And, and sometimes when we have less of a plan, we say, all right, well, what's in front of us? What do you need? How do you react to that? And we can react better in the moment with no plan. You went, you went from talking to triage. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, the two things related to that, Brian, that we saw in COVID is that if you talk, on average, teachers talk 90% of the time. If you talk 90% of the time, on average, by the way, academics talk 100% of the time. If you talk, <laughs> if you talk That's why that I started time. this podcast. I was tired of students talking during my class. So I was like, you know, this, uh, this way, it's all, it's all talking. Someone me. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, want, you want to bore the pants off your kids. But the trouble is the time they you know, get to high school, they're used to the fact that they, their job is to come to school and watch you work. Now, that's not what it should be. Right. And so if you, talk, if you ask on average 150 to 250 questions a day requiring less than three words response from the kids, if mm -hmm. you do that on Zoom, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose right. them so fast it's scary. And so you had to adapt. And so this notion of... You, Brian, having a gradual release of responsibility to the kids. It's mm -hmm. so powerful. And the, and, the, and the correlate of that is what we, our jargon word is self-regulation. But what it means is kids are more prepared to talk about that which they don't know. They're prepared to acknowledge errors. They're prepared to say to you, look, Mr. Alberg, I don't understand this part. Can you go over it again? They'll do that with their colleagues. And interestingly, given their Facebook experiences, they're more willing to do that over social media than they are in person. And so some of the attractions of Zoom and Teams and all these things is that they could send you a, a chat saying, oh, I'm not following, help me more here. They could send it to their students, but in so class, they won't do that. So what you're finding, that's so interesting because you're, you're saying that they are more likely to ask for help in the areas they need it in a remote setting. That hasn't been, that hasn't been my, that hasn't been my experience. I find that students are, when I'm in person, even we're now in person one day a week. And when that happens, I have more of what I feel like are those relationship building that often turn into classwork conversations where you're just sort of hanging around. And a kid says, I was a little confused by what you just talked about. Can you? Just, just be yeah. careful here, bro. You, you said during COVID teaching or during regular class teaching? So it's still during COVID teaching, but I'm in school one day, one day a week. So this was this Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, but that's not the right comparison. Okay. What about compared to your regular classroom? I think compared to my regular classroom, it's interesting. I have some students who are very strong self-advocators over Zoom, but I think that there still are some who, I don't know, who maybe 
who do still, it, Zoom makes it easier for them to check out. Yeah, and that's what we've certainly been finding from the work. And like, we actually discovered this before COVID, that kids will use social media to talk to each other, to query and talk about what they don't know. Totally. And what's so interesting is I've had times where I talk to a student on Zoom and they tell me, oh, I'm in a separate chat with three other kids. We're doing the work together. And they almost feel like that's something wrong. They like don't want to tell me that. But I'm like, great, do that, please. Please work together. That's amazing. And so one of the claims I'm trying to make here is I want every school to have a a discussion amongst their staff and their kids, what worked well during Zoom that we can bring back? Like, I'm not advocating that we're going to go back to distance learning during the regular school year because the question you just right. commented, it, it does, it, it makes it tough for relationships. It right. makes it tougher in some ways. And so how, you can still do those kind of things in the regular classroom. But the notion of the teacher being the dominant player in every classroom, talking, constructing, conducting the orchestra, isn't necessarily what we should be doing. Um, like I just, um, a colleague sent me a book about student questions. Like there are a thousand books out there about teacher questioning, but how do you develop the student questioning, which is part of the self-regulation? And I think that's the exciting thing that happened during COVID is that we saw some more proactive learning discussions and behaviors, not only between the teacher and the kid, but between the kids, that we need to capture that and bring it back. Um, also, think of some of the kids in your class, Brian, that are mm-hmm. you classify as the naughty ones. Right. Some of them had, they, they weren't naughty on Zoom because right. they'd lost all their cues and contingencies. All we talk about as teachers is classroom management and the kids are acting up and they're talking too much. And now I feel like the conversations have totally flipped where now all of a sudden we don't have classroom management sort of to blame anymore. And now we're saying, I wish the kids would talk more. Yep. Now, here's an interesting notion. When we look at what students talk about on the regular classroom, and Graham Nuttall's done the best work on this, and we've been following Mm -hmm. it. um, Sadly, they don't talk about the work so often. It's about their social life, about other things. Also, when we look at the nature of the work that teachers give them to work in groups or talk to each other, too often it's about the content, about the knowledge development. And it turns out that if a kid says to another kid a wrong answer, the kids are more likely to remember the wrong answer than if you say the right answer. Right. And so this is one of the reasons why as teachers, we don't often like kids talking and working together. Like we love them sitting in groups, working alone, but working (laughs) together. But what we should be doing is making sure the kids have sufficient content knowledge and then giving them situations and problems which require them to relate ideas, sort of the more complex problem-based learning notions. Right. Uh, like problem-based learning doesn't work in the regular classroom so often because most kids aren't prepared with the content. Mm-hmm. And so the beauty of a lot of what we can do with the Zoom is we can, as the teachers, still impart the knowledge and the precious knowledge and the content, which obviously I would argue you have to <clears throat> before you go to the next phase, which you can use a lot of social media in the staff room in, in the classroom to do. So I think there's an mal- amalgamation there and my argument is a Kenny Rogers notion. As teachers, we've got to know when to hold them. We've got to know when to play them. <laughs> we've got to know when, which methods to use at the right time. But sometimes we morph them together and the kids don't know. Right. Um, and so if I came into your class and asked your kid who's a, uh, your kids who's the best learner, they typically say the kid who knows lots, which right. is not necessarily what you want. Right. You want a bit more than that. What, something I've struggled with this year because I think that I do, I I totally understand what you're saying, but give them the content and then also try to give them some sort of deep task as opposed to a worksheet where they're doing some repetition and often reinforcing something incorrectly 20 times before you can get there. Something I've struggled with this year, um, and this is sort of just turning into a therapy session for me, but something I've struggled with this year is I'll give give an article, I'll put a video up of me explaining a concept that they can use at their own pace. And then I'll give what I think is sort of a deeper, richer task and say, now work on this, you know, for the take how a half hour, an hour, a couple days and work on this assignment. And what's easy to do in the classroom is five minutes in, I can tell who's working and who's not. And I can go have a conversation with students who are not working. On Zoom, I, that ability has been taken away from me. So where, where do we go from there? Well, this is where 
the beauty of the new world is how we can do both. Right. Now, one of the things we need to be really careful with is when we go up to students when they're working by themselves or they're working in groups, too often we go up and say, what are you doing? How are right. you going? How can I help? And the effect of that is we often bring it back from their struggle to a content-based notion. <clears throat> we don't ask them, what are you struggling with? And sometimes we say, well, yeah, that's a good struggle. Keep going. And how does that uh, distinction manifest itself in student answers? Well, that's the point. We don't want the conversation between the student and the teacher to be a yes, no, right, wrong. Right. Here's more knowledge, no more knowledge. But right. that's often what the kids expect from you when you walk up to them. And quite frankly, we reinforce that by asking questions. What are you working on? How are you going? As opposed to what's the struggle you're having? And we don't legitimize the struggle. Um, and like you, you don't go to school to learn that which you already know. You go to struggle and failure should be your best friend. Kids learn very quickly by about age eight that it's failure is a negative thing, not a positive thing. They learn that if you don't know, it's a negative thing, not a positive thing. But every task you do, um, if, you, if you know it already, it's too easy. It's getting that level of, of not knowing. And so the, the point you're making is that I think we need to be smarter as teachers about how we approach kids when we give them tasks to make sure that we don't bring it back to a knowledge-based discussion between you and the kid. Um, and you know, the trouble, Brian, is you're so nice. You want to help the kid. Right, exactly. Sometimes, yeah, and sometimes the best help we can give the kid is to let them wallow in the pit. But go back to Kenny Rogers. There's a right time for that. Right. When the kid is trying to look at relationships, connect ideas, extend it, go deeper, as opposed to they don't know, then it's quite correct you should go in and help them with the knowledge and build that up. But unfortunately, that's too often where kids stop and start. It's about knowing. Once I know it, I've done it. Well, no. Once you know it, you're then ready to make those relationships, to make those connections, to build those, those, those transfer ideas. And, and so creating the right task. We've just um, actually finishing a book. We, we discovered a few years ago the incredible power of teachers' collective efficacy, the teachers working together with high expectations. Mm -hmm. And we said, what would happen if we did that with students? And so we've written this book on student, uh, um, self student collective efficacy. And the argument being is that so often as teachers put kids in groups, but they don't value both the group contribution and the individual contribution to the group. So the kids learn very quickly. It's still about them as an individual. So how do you get the tasks right? And how right. do you make sure it goes beyond the knowledge? I've seen and how do you get the contingencies right? So when, when talking about valuing the group work, I feel like something I see that I, 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 I struggle with is oftentimes group work is prescribed as you're the secretary, you write everything down, you're the calculator, you do all the calculations. And that seems to be a way to force teamwork, but it does seem inauthentic at the same time, because ideally they should all be doing all of the things together, right? It'd be like having a basketball team and saying, you're the scorer, no one else can score, you're the only one who can put the ball in the basket, right? Or... Yeah, But then the thing, which is what our book is about, is what are the skills needed to do it? And one of the most powerful, and I have to confess I'm not very good at this, is having building the confidence that the group can come up with a better answer than the, than the individual. Like I, I've, I've been a, a dean at a university for many, many years, and I've sat in so many meetings where I sit there and think, oh, my goodness, I could do this so much faster than myself <laughs> right. and the group. I'm the problem and that I'm not having the confidence in the group. But then the other thing I'd say is that as teachers, so often we give them tasks where it's okay to be the scorer, the shooter of these things. Right. And we really have to mess that up. But let's get real. Kids aren't silly. They don't look to what you say. They look to see what you value. And what you value is the assignment, the assessment. And if that is a group task to which they get a individual mark or a group mark, that will change their behaviors. And our recommendation is you give both. What's the mm -hmm. contribution to the group and what's the group task? So you actually value the group task. Um, it's no different in the staff room. Principal gives you a problem. Brian, you're the maths expert. You'll do the maths part. Right. Someone else do the other part. That's not how we should be setting up our tasks. Right. And I think so often what, I've, what I see is that I give kids a task. And what happens is the, quote, the person with the highest grade so far in the group does it first. And then they 
here, pass the notebook to the, a friend before I can get there to try to facilitate a deeper conversation. And then the friend copies it down. The other friend says, oh no, we are working together. And the way we're working together is I did it all. And then I told my friend what to copy down. But, so you gave him the wrong yeah. task, Ron. Right. So what's a, what's a better task? Other than a task, I, I feel like I can use these terms, a deeper task, a more authentic task. And I, and I strive for these things. And yeah, I think we all do. But well, here's what another is, note. Yeah. Why don't you give them a situation where they have to work out what the problem is? Right. As opposed to solving the problem. Give them a situation where you give them a problem, like a maths class, and you deliberately have a wrong answer and say, work out how that student made the wrong answer. Then mm -hmm. suddenly all the kids have to say, oh, this is how I might have gone about it. Oh, I got the wrong answer that way. So therefore, I'm the right one. And so working out what was wrong about it is, is, is a way of really understanding and getting kids to talk aloud about how they think. Does that not also have a... Does that not also have a right answer as well? Because there is only, there's often only one specific way that someone did that problem wrong when you give it to them, right? Well, absolutely. But I bet I bet every problem you give in your maths classroom, yes. one kid gets it wrong and they don't know how they got it wrong or why mm -hmm. they got it wrong. And too often we say to them, it is wrong. Now do it again and get it right as if magically they're going to have a different <laughs> way of thinking because you said that. Right. Whereas if you legitimize that getting it wrong is part of the exercise, but more importantly, that's the time where you hear ki how kids think. And like the whole concept of visible learning, to which I get into trouble for, because many people say you can't, learning's not visible. The reason I called that is I want to make the learning more visible. And this is right. a way of getting kids to think about their strategies. Like we did a, a study recently where we, we've got, 17,000 hours of transcripts of teachers' lessons. And we thought, let's go through those to find examples of either when a teacher listens to how a kid solves the problem, particularly when they get it wrong, or when the kid gets something wrong, when they give them an alternative strategy. Guess how many we found on that 17,000 hours? How many? Fat zero. So why do kids sit in there think, get it wrong, do it again? Why would they do it again when they're going to use the same strategy and get it wrong again? How do we then say, how are they going about thinking? And going back to the point I'm making, Brian, is that when you go in group work, this is where you can get kids to think aloud right. and legitimize. And the kid who gets it wrong is the one that is the most powerful in the group because they've solved the problem. And so I think there are ways in which we can go about using groups much more effective if we get the tasks right. But as you were saying earlier, making sure they have sufficient content so it doesn't get into just the brightest kid doing all the work and the rest just social loafing. We don't want that either. Right. And has that something that's been made generally easier over Zoom because of use of other social media and stuff like that for kids to have these sort of, they're working in a group, but privately? Well, yes, because of the, yes and no. Yes, primarily because over Zoom, you we can't sit there. If we're going to work out a problem between us now, us now talking about it all the time is not going to work. We're going to say sooner or later, hey, Brian, why don't we go away for an hour, work on something, and then come back? Mm -hmm. And that's more likely to happen over the Zoom. Now, of course, you can do that in the regular class. But classes are structured, the bells and the whistles and the things that go on, the teacher is hovering. It's, it's not as easy to construct that away time. And it's like when you look at, all the research in the science of learning that um, you know, giving a kid 10 problems to do today is a much, much less effective way of learning than doing one problem every 10 days. So that spacing happens on Zoom that typically doesn't happen in the regular classroom. So I think there are some advantages of doing it because if we sit down for five hours together on Zoom and talk through it, we'll soon realize it's pretty damned inefficient. We've got to right. structure sometimes away to, to go down false alleys to explore things to go and find out more information to come back and say hey look brian i've just spent the last hour on this part of the problem i had it didn't work well that's a beauty we actually got to a point where we realized it didn't work in the classroom what do we do teacher it's not working come and tell me show me how to do it and that's then incredible dependence on teaching right and and students oftentimes by the time they get to high school have been conditioned to think that the teacher's job is to help me get the right answer today. And if the teacher doesn't get the right answer, if I don't get the right answer today, that means the teacher's not helping me enough 
So I feel like it's often really difficult for students to grasp that, oh, I'm gonna, I need to let you struggle today so that in, by the end of the year, you will know how to do this. Um, and you're also such a nice person, Brian. I'm sure you'll rush up and help those kids because that's I, what we think our job is. Not as much as I, I, I try hard to not help them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's going back to our COVID argument. Right. You couldn't spend five hours a day on Zoom with all your kids in front of you. It right. just didn't work. And that was the advantage of it. So I read that in... In the article you talked about, you meant you talked about how we're valuing engagement rather than valuing seat time, which I think is what you just started to get into. So this is something I'm going to be talking about in a future episode of the podcast, but to connect it to something you said earlier, right? students do know what you value, right? This might seem like a convoluted question. I'm going to try to connect it. Students do know what you value, and they know what you value is, let's say, the completion of some task that requires that a task where they're asking the questions and well, I'll call it a Hattie task, right? A perfect task, the way that you picture, right? Let's say that you give that. And then in a couple of days, you don't see any work that's happened from students. They haven't been able to meet up and have those Zooms. They haven't spent the time asking questions on their own. So then they come back. So then as a teacher, I think, you know what? I'm going to then start giving them credit for quote unquote seat time or for trying problems in a way that I can see it. And now they know what I value. So now they are more likely to come into my class and to try, but I feel like that I'm moving them back to something more traditional. Did that question make any sense? Well, the beauty of that question is I can answer anything I like. So let me have a go. <laughs> I'm sorry if it wasn't clear, I could try again. <laughs> um, and, uh, when we did a, a survey a couple of years ago, Amy Berry and the team asked what are teachers conceive as the notion of engagement right and sadly the majority of the answer was kids are engaged when they're doing and this is what i'm hearing you ask in your question were the kids doing the task now here's the sad fact in a lot of doing there often is no learning and for some kids getting the work handed in regardless of the quality or the correctness is the answer they can demonstrate they're doing here's, and you in your question yeah so sorry here's a better way to phrase the question so I find that I'm someone, I, I start the year and I want to be a person who really values learning. So then I give tasks and I notice that they aren't done. So then I take a step down and I feel like I give doing tasks. And then students say, oh, this guy values doing and he values seat time. So I will give him that. And my goal is to get to the learning. And it feels like it's the end of May and it's we're, we're, we're getting there a tiny bit, but not as much as I, I want us to get there. And so in doing all that, I want you to spend more time thinking aloud with them, mm -hmm. um, going through the, the, the process and the strategies, um, demonstrating that there are more than one strategy to answer a particular problem or by thinking through a strategy to answer a particular problem. And, you know, Matt's being one of my areas as well, so in statistician, there are many ways of getting to the right conclusion. Right. Um, but demonstrating that, making errors and demonstrating that, you know, let's go back and work out how Mr. Alberg made that error and legitimizing that because that's what the kids are experiencing. And so mimic the experience of thinking more than the doing, the just doing the task and getting it right. And when kids get things wrong, you say, that's great. Let's ha have another go. Think aloud. Here's a different strategy. And rewarding the second time more than the first time because they've actually gone back and tried a different strategy. There are lots of ways in which we can demonstrate to kids that it's not all about knowing lots and just because you're the, the kid who doesn't get it right fast um, and, and get it in quickly, you, you're therefore a failure. And also the other part I want you to emphasize is the concept of progress. Like the kid at the bottom of the class, if they're making great progress, that's just, that's a hell of a lot better the kid at the top of the class who's not making progress. Right. That's often missed by kids who constantly see, like Emma's learning already, that if you put your hand up and get the right answer, you're a good girl. If you get a high score, you get lots of favours by the teacher. So she's learning that high achievement is a good thing. Whereas here in Australia, I can show you the data that over 50% of our schools are schools which take kids above average and don't add a year's value. And that's killing us as a nation. But because of our rhetoric about high achievement, they're seen as good schools. 
sadly for those kids. And so there is a way in which you try and get across that it's not always about getting things right all the time. This was that this leads me right into sort of where I was hoping we would go, which is I feel like I then in service of trying to make sure that kids are trying problems and trying them again, right? And, and making mistakes and trying it a different way will say that, I, great, I'll give you credit if you try this problem three or four times, right? Or I'll give you credit, I'll give you some credit if you, if you show me that you're trying it a couple of different ways. And then what I've noticed that I get, and I feel like this is maybe more true in a Zoom world than it would be in, a, in person, is that students are trying it so that they can show me and say, I've tried it. You see that I've tried it, but they're not doing the kind of thinking that I want them to be doing. They're not trying it with fidelity. Do you know what I mean? About, does that? I think so. Keep going. So then I, right. So I guess what I feel like is I'm, I'm going for that level of, I'm going for those learning tasks. I'm going, trying to prioritize engagement, but I sometimes feel like in doing that, I lower expectations slightly for students who are at the bottom trying to trying to grow. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly I'd be wanting you to talk to those kids to see if you are lowering expectations, but you're also legitimizing the space they're often in, and that is that trying, trying, trying with often very little reward. Um, but the, the other thing I'd be looking at also is, um, like, let me ask you, Brian, mm -hmm. how do you learn? I learn... And I've learned this as I've gotten older by trying things. I need to, I want to try with almost no instructions and then I'll fail. And then I'll sort of, you know, and then I'll sort of go from there. If that makes sense, I'll learn from the failure and, and go from there. So why do you deny your kids that right? Deny my, here's, here's why there's, there's an actual, I, I, I don't want to. But I think that sometimes we do deny our kids that right because we it's it's a way to get something out of them. And I feel like I've as a teacher so often in the Zoom world thought I'm getting not I'm getting nothing. I feel like I'm yelling into a, I feel like I'm yelling into a void sometimes. Um, oh, yeah. I, you know, so. But the and the point I'm trying to to exploit here is right. that getting those kids to talk aloud about their thinking is really tough because even as adults, we struggle with the language of learning. And so legitimizing that language of learning where it's okay for them to, to say, well, let me show you, Mr. Alberg, how I went about doing this problem and how I got it wrong. You're legitimizing that, you're getting them to have a language of learning. You're getting to say, well, let's, let's take another child now in the class, another student, how do they go about doing it? And so for many kids, it's the first time they've heard that thinking aloud about working through a problem. And that's what I would love to see legitimized in class, a hang of a lot more, that discussion about what learning is. Like if I came into your class and said to your students, who's the best learner in Mr. Alberg's class? Uh, too often, sadly, the students say, it's the kid who gets it right, right. who does it fast, and who doesn't put in the effort, which is the exact opposite of right. what good learning is. So breaking that down and breaking that up is really what I think we need to go, whether it be Zoom or whether it be the regular classroom. But in all the analysis we do, it's very rare that you get those discussions going on amongst kids and amongst classrooms and certainly amongst teachers. And that's what we want to have more. When you see more of that, then kids realize that they're all in the same position. Failure is the best friend you can have as a learner. Struggle is the best friend you can have as a learner. But that's not what they learn so often. And that's the very thing that you want them to do. You want them to be engaged in the excitement of exploring problems, making right connections, making wrong connections, working out when they're wrong, how they then can go and get more information and more detail and different ways of doing things. And that's the exciting part of learning. What have schools done? What policies or structures have schools done to make that type of learning happen more often? Well, there are many schools prior to COVID who were doing this stuff well, extremely right. well. And so don't let me pretend this, there are all schools out there are bad. That's just not true. Um, in fact, I have a very strong line that in education, too often we look for failure and try and fix it. Whereas what I'm interested in is looking for success and scaling it up. We right. have a lot of success out there. And so it, it's this notion of gradual release of responsibility by the teacher. It's this notion of students being more 
aware of what they know and they don't know, uh, more able to ask questions about what they don't know, not just the procedural things, where they can have thinking aloud and it's a safe, trusted environment for them to get things wrong and explore the edges of what they know. It's what we call our, our stu assessment capable students, students who know what the purpose of what they're doing. It's a bit like them playing um, video games and, and Angry Birds. They know what the next level is. They know what their current performance is. They know how to seek feedback and get cues and get lessons from you so they can reduce the gap between where they are and the next level. Right. They know also that the teacher won't come along at the end of the class and lower the success criteria. So, oh, you did your best, good work, which just is the most damning thing we do to many kids because it reinforces that they're not good learners. And you know that those kids will play their video games for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and invest in learning. It's the same that I want to see in classes of kids having and teachers teaching the kids. And like, this is why we're so obsessed with success criteria. When the kids know what the next level is, what success is, then they know how to interpret your teaching. They know how to interpret the feedback. If they don't know what the criteria of what good's good enough and when, when it's satisfactory, then to them, it's just all incoming. And so right. they don't know what's important, what's not important. And so these are the kind of things that I think happened in many, many classrooms and I want to see a lot more of. To me and to, I think, some other people, you did your best good job is actually, that sounds similar. It sounds like it's in the neighborhood, perhaps, of legitimizing struggle and failure, which you say is our best friend as well. But I think is what, is what your point is, you did your best good job is just lowering expectations and telling them they've met it when they haven't versus putting them back to the problem and encouraging them to ask the questions is making them more comfortable with failure in service of long-term learning. Yeah, is you that the distinction? Say, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want you to say, as, as, as uh, my kids said to me, because I taught them in the very early days, sometimes your good's not good enough, Dad. Your best's not good enough. So the worst thing you could ever say to a kid as a parent or a teacher is do your best because what they did was their best. And sometimes it wasn't good enough. And so I don't want to let them to, to slip away with such a low expectation of doing their best. Like it, it's like when you hear some districts have policies where the aim of the school is to help kids reach their potential. What an incredible low aspiration that is. Our job is to help kids exceed what they think their potential is. Many kids walk into your class, Brian, and say, my job in this class this year is to get a C. Your job's to mess that up and let make them get a B. Yes. And so kids' expectations are three times more powerful than teacher expectations. And we hardly ever talk about it. As I was saying before, most kids by age eight know where they fit in the classroom. And that's what they walk into the class with. As I say, your job's to mess that up. Other than just holding them accountable for excellent work, what's the best way to raise students' expectations for themselves then? Is, is firstly to understand what their expectations are. Okay. And then say, okay, you think you're going to get a C in this course? Let's work together to get a B. And so I'm, I'm here to help you. That's my job. I'm here to help you get to that B. So we're in together. But raising that expectation, like that is the one of the most powerful things that kids walk into your classrooms with. And so knowing what their expectations are. Like one of the pieces of work that my colleague, Christine Ruby Davies does is she goes into classes at the end of the first year, sorry, the first month each academic year. And she asks the teachers and the kids, where do you think you're going to end up at the end of the year in terms of a grade? Now, sadly, teachers who get the kids and have very low expectations for them are stunningly successful at having low expectations for all their kids. And those who have high expectations are stunningly good at raising them. Same with the students. Um, now, that puts pressure on you, and in my view, the right pressure, on you as the teacher to help kids exceed what they thought their, their potential was. But that's the name of the game. If you don't understand that, you're, you're just walking uphill the whole way. And there's also that notion we were mentioning before, Brian, about that emphasis on progress as much as achievement. Now, I want both. But we don't emphasize progress. We don't get kids to do a, a plot, a personal bests. Um, like every kid... Every kid knows what a personal best is. This was your personal best. Let's exceed it. Let's beat it. And so I think there are ways we can develop in the classroom this, this notion that we can strive upwards. And it's that striving and driving that you want to develop in your kids, not just participating, not just the doing. And it does mean you're going to have to be an excellent teacher. 
But hey, we got plenty of those. We certainly do. And so what are you, we've talked a lot about what has worked well in Zoom this year, right? We've talked a lot about what we hope carries forward. What's the one thing that you're most nervous schools are going to put back? Basically, you know, when something that schools didn't have all year, didn't make a bit of difference, and now they're going to go ahead and put it back in schools, and it's going to either hurt kids or just take up a ton of time, resources, and effort to put that back in. Teachers reverting to talking 90% of the time, asking 200 questions that require less than three words response. That's my terror. Not every teacher does that now, and that's right. great. But too many do, and the kids learn that that's their job. Come to school, sit up straight, watch the teacher work. In Zoom, we had a lot more kids working. Now, it created problems. It created dilemmas. But my goodness, they were the right problems and dilemmas. What's one example of those problems that was the right problem? We saw kids struggling a lot more on Zoom in the right ways. We saw teachers changing from that my job's to talk to my job's to triage. And as I was commenting earlier, and you can do that in the regular classroom. And many teachers already were. We just need more teachers to be triage experts rather than talkers, to being valuing students doing the work rather than the teachers doing the work. I'll tell you one thing, Brian, yeah. that came out of COVID, which again amplified it. We've always known that social and emotional learning are important. Right. I've always seen it as a kind of a separate thing we deal with. Mm -hmm. COVID brought them together. Now, I'm okay. a bit nervous. Um, I don't want to say teachers now have to be professional counsellors uh, of social-emotional learning, so I want to refer the social-emotional learning related, social-emotional related specifically to the learning, and that is making the struggle of learning a desirable thing. I'm not talking about depression um, and anxi well, anxiety. I am because it, it kind of goes to Carol Dweck's work. I interpret her work as growth mindset is about having confidence that you can attain the success criteria. Right. So if you don't have that confidence, you have anxiety. And like, you know, I taught for many years statistics courses to education students. Wow, did I see that anxiety on day one when I walked into the room? If I didn't deal with that, I knew I was going to have no success. And I bet a lot of listeners out there have been to those courses and their instructor didn't deal with the anxiety and they didn't have a lot of success. It's the same with kids is that kids build up this image of themselves. And one way to reduce anxiety is to say, well, I'm going to get a C. So I'll take all the pressure off myself. Mm -hmm. We need some of that pressure built back in. And so we need to deal with that confidence. So those amplifying of those social and emotional, I think that's an exciting thing that we've learned from COVID as to how we can use positive attributes of social and emotional, the sense of confidence in other students the confidence in the group, the sense of confidence that they can attain the success criteria, the reducing of that anxiety. I think they're really important things we can learn. Make their work harder, but I think to the better. So is that to say that, because we talked earlier about relationship building, and to me, that's the one thing that I've lost, if not in terms of student achievement, but in terms of my enjoyment of the work, is that I've lost these relationships with students all year. Um, so is that to say that this year, they have actually gained so much in these, as a result of the struggles they've had to overcome, that it's sort of made up for possible losses in relationships and that sort of social, emotional. Well, I'm not sure, Brian. I think I'd love to see the research come out on this, but my hunch is what's happened is that you as the teacher have spent more of your time dealing with the relationships between students in your class as much as you spend between you and the students. Because the relationships between students, which is very teacher related as well, is one of the things that is so critical in Zoom. Like you get the kids to go away and do a task. If they go away and you don't have good relationships between students, you know it's gonna be a massive failure. You know they're not gonna make the connection. So you had to deal with that a lot more. Right. I think the other thing that happened in schools is I saw more school leaders dealing with the collective efficacy of you teachers than I've ever seen. They had to worry about your mental health, your social health, your effectiveness as teaching, what problems you were having, how you could relate to other teachers, as opposed to standing up in the staff room and talking to you for an hour um, about something. 
And so I, I saw those kind of things where we had to deal with it. Now, when you come back to the regular classroom, I don't want you to default back to say, it's about me and the students. Yeah, that's critical. But it's more than that. It's about you and the students, and it's about how you get the students work together. And I think that's one of the benefits that uh, some kids can benefit from COVID is their teachers also worry about their relationships working in groups. The fairness. Like when you ask kids what's the one thing they want in terms of the climate of the classroom, they want it to be fair. They don't want kids being privileged for various reasons and not others. And even I bet you had teachers were very, very strict. If that fairness was, if that strictness was fair, you could tolerate that teacher. Um, if it wasn't, it's a pretty nasty situation because you never knew what was going to come next next two minutes. And so, yeah, I do think that I'm with you. The thing we lost was that interpersonal that we pick up from the visual, from the verbal, from walking around, the eye, the touch, all the things that we do in the, in, in the in-person stuff. Yes. But I do think we also gained by seeing that it's about how we do that amongst the students. So I want both. I'm greedy. I, I'm greedy too. And I think my school has done a good job this year. I'm actually new to my school this year, but I think they've done a really good job of checking in on teachers this year. And we've gotten a lot of gifts and appreciation things and a $20 gift card to Chipotle and stuff like that, which are silly things. But when you're eating a Chipotle burrito, it doesn't feel so silly. I mean, it feels great. And I feel very valued by something like that. But the other thing I'd, I'd, I'd ask you about is like here in Australia, um, they were out for four months at home. And you know, the parents there trying to deal with their one or two kids at the home. And you know, they saw the lack of motivation. They saw the struggles they were in. I think they learned more about learning than they've ever done. They learned more about what you do at a school, even though they all went to school themselves. They learned more about the struggle of learning, about how that's a good thing. Many of them complained in the early days, saying, the kid can't do it. And you know, my answer to that is, and that's why they're doing it. If they could do it, there's no point because they know it. Right. Back off. But the other thing is on the, the Monday when they they first went back to school, you could put your head out the window and hear that collective relief of those parents saying, oh, my gosh, yeah, I struggled for four months with my two kids. Here's Brian. He has 200 kids a day for 200 <laughs> days a year. Yes. And he does it. That incredible expertise that parents have realized, this is the moment to not only your principal give you gifts, but to raise that discussion, um, but particularly amongst the leaders around the New York City about how parents can better engage with schools. See expertise. Like all my work, Brian, comes to the notion that it's about teacher expertise. It's about school leader expertise. Why is it you guys are the best at denying that? Oh, the kids did the work. Oh, the teacher, the, the principal gave me the right resources. You're actually very, very good at the evaluative thinking to make all those decisions. And I, I think parents saw that more than they've ever done. So if we could change the dialogue from give us more money and leave us alone to <laughs> value us for our expertise and give us the right recompense for that, I think we're in a really good situation. We really need to exploit the fact that I think COVID showed that teachers are stunningly great intellectual professionals that we need in our system. My worry is, and it's happening in your country, it's happening in mine, more and more amateurs are coming into the school as adults. And I think that's a disaster. We need to privilege that expertise. And COVID certainly showed that. Going back to the old normal, we'll go back to the old debates. And we know we haven't been very successful at winning those old debates. We talked early on about how there wasn't such a there wasn't this giant difference between last year's learning in person and remote learning as we thought there would be. Was there a particular difference in subgroups? Because for example, I have two nieces who go to private school in New Jersey and when they're doing remote learning, their Harvard educated dad is right next to them making sure they're doing all the right things. And they have tutors after school and before school and they have all of these different resources to sort of make up what gaps may be occurring versus students who don't have those financial resources, whose parents aren't sitting with them at home, is it? Is there a possibility that students at the bottom fell further behind, students at the top got further ahead, and as a result, the averages that we don't see much of a difference? No, I don't think it's as simple as that. And pity that's your, your niece or nephew that's sitting there with their Harvard-educated dad. What are they learning? They're learning that it's just getting it right. Right. Um, like one of the things that I struggle with, regardless of COVID, is why is it 
most gifted kids don't become gifted adults. Less than 2% of child prodigies go on to be gifted adults. It's because when they get to about the age of 14 and 15 and they're forced to do subject they don't know anything about, they don't know how to fail. They don't know how to be challenged to things they don't know. They've always had that resource and the tutors and all those things. And like a lot of those tutors, let's get honest, they do the work for the kids. Of course. And the kids learn that it's about getting someone else to do the hard work. Not I was them. a tutor. I was a tutor and that's what I did <laughs> when I was so, 15. <laughs> but, the th but the thing that I want every teacher to do is when the kids come back to the regular classroom, don't presume, discover. Don't presume that the brighter got brighter and the, and the struggling ones at the bottom got worse. Not at all. Some of your naughtiest kids, some of your kids classified with special needs, did quite well under Zoom in various parts. And so don't presume that this is really bad. So I would want a fair bit of discovery in those first times to work out. What we're doing here in Australia, which is in Victoria, which is working quite well, and you, it, it's a resourcing issue, is we've assigned to all schools um, special, special coaches that, two things. Firstly, they have to be ex-teachers. So we don't want more yeah. amateurs going to the school. Secondly, there has to be an IEP plan for every kid that has a special tutor. Um, so that it relates to what you're doing in the classroom and it's signed off by you and the principal. And then there's an evaluation built in to make sure that there is an understanding when it's time to stop, when the kid brings back. And what we're discovering is there is no pattern. There isn't necessarily the bright kids or the kids at the bottom of the distribution. It's specific things they didn't, didn't get and you missed out on. And we now have quite a few thousand of those in the schools. And I have a hunch they're going to stay. And I think it's a really excellent thing to have with you, Brian, to be able to say to some of your students, look, you're struggling on this part of the thing right now. We're going to give you special coaching in the school, paid for in the school, in school time as part of the work. And it's part of what you, the teacher, want. Like this notion that you're in charge of your 20 or 30 kids and it's just you. You go to any other profession, they have Doctors have nurses, they have surgeons, they have all these kind of other ones that come in and give us help. Why is it that we think that we're the only one in the class that can do everything? I like this notion that we're bringing these kind of special coaches um, and tutors into the system. But my point isn't that. My point is don't presume that the, the bright got brighter and the ones at the bottom got worse. It, it, it just didn't work out that way. Yeah, it's, I guess what's interesting, you brought up students with IEPs and the one student I have who has been an absolute star of remote learning, who did struggle in person and has now excelled on every level in a remote setting is a student with an IEP who had focus issues in class and now in this setting is really thriving. And I try not to use real names on the show, but his name's Jason and he's doing great, so. <laughs> Good on you, Jason. Yeah. Uh, but that's what I mean, discover, don't presume. Um, well, Discover Don't Presume, I think, is a good place to leave it. John Hattie, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Brian. Great talking to you. Great talking to you also. All right, that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Hattie. If you did enjoy it, please review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this. Also, make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian Elberg so you can stay up to date with any developments on the podcast, as well as future guests. All right, that's it. I hope you listen to another episode of What Do You Teach? Must I forever?